All right, Team Buck, special treat for you all today. We are joined by author and former Navy SEAL Jack Carr. His newest book out now is Savage Son. He's also the author of The Terminal List and True Believer. Mr. Carr, how you doing, sir? Doing great. How are you there in New York City? I'm, I'm in a little bit uh, of, of a rougher spot in terms of geographic location right now than, than you are, I think. You're out in Utah, right? So things here are a little rougher than out there, but I'm glad you're doing well. Yep, no, we're in Utah. I wanted to raise our kids in a ski town, so we came up here after I got out of the military, left Coronado, and uh, yeah, it's not not too bad up here. I have, uh, I have a feeling you yeah, probably have course. you have sufficient breathing room slash plenty of ammunition, storable food, potable water. I'm just going to guess all those things. So, yeah, I've always been into being prepared from even before my SEAL team days. But, uh, yeah, we were good with the ammo and the guns, of course, and then uh, food, water, filtration systems, ways to make fire, all those little things so that you can uh, focus bandwidth where it needs to go in times of crisis. So I felt good. Uh, finally, my wife's like, oh, now I see why we've been preparing for these things all these years. And uh, so anyway, it, 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 we feel good about that part of it anyway. So, so I want to talk about your books a bit, Jack. But, but first, I thought we would let everybody know. Uh, a bit more about who you are and, and how you got to this point where now you're you're writing thriller. What? what how, by the way, how would we classify a thriller action novel? I mean, it's not really espionage, right? So thriller uh, along the lines of, of go ahead. It's like a, so it's a political thriller, uh, same type of books that uh, Brad Thor, Vince Flynn, um, Nelson DeMille, Stephen Hunter, those kind of, uh, of novels. So political thriller is how it's classified. All right, but people are going to want to know that they, they they hear former Navy SEAL and they want to know some of the some of the background there. How how did you you know tell us where 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 did you start out and how did you get into the teams? Yeah, so I wanted to do two things my entire life. One was serve my country in uniform, specifically as a Navy SEAL, and the other was to write fiction. And I wanted to go in the military at first because I grew up with the idea of uh, my grandfather as my hero. Uh, he was killed in World War II. He flew the Corsair, which is a plane that had the gull wings that would fold up on aircraft carriers. So I grew up with the silk maps they used to give aviators back then, his medals, black and white photos of him and his squadron. And Black Sheep Squadron was on TV at the time, starring Robert Conrad. So this is the late 70s, early 80s. And I just knew that that was the path I was going to take. I was going to serve my country in the uniform. It was a, in, it was a calling. Uh, then I found out very early on what SEALs were. And my dad, uh, well, I was watching football, put my dad would watch football on the weekends. And there was those four channels, as you may or may not remember, ABC, CBS, NBC. And then there was the one outlier channel that always seemed to have a World War II movie on playing opposite football on Sundays. So during commercials, I got to go up and watch what was on that opposite channel and watch that war movie. And in one of them, they had these guys coming up over the beach, putting explosives on obstacles in advance of a conventional force landing. And I asked my dad who these guys were. And he said, Frogmen, because that was the name of the movie. And uh, I said, well, what are the Frogmen? These look look awesome. And he said, go ask your mother. And my mom was a librarian. So we grew up surrounded by books, this love of reading, and went to do some research at the local library, found out what SEALs were. And so from that age, from seven on, I knew that I would one day make it into the SEAL teams, or at least I try out. I test myself in that crucible that was Bud's. When that did you start training. doing your, your own version of like the Rocky training montage when he's in Russia in the snow? You know, was was 14 year old, right. was 16 year old Jack Carr doing doing push ups in like in like freezing water somewhere? I mean, how, how, how did you get ready for this? 
This is true. So, uh, of course, I was a big fan of the Rocky movies, and so was my so was my dad. So early on, uh, we were we were uh, watching those movies, and I was sprinting up the hills by our house, and I was trying to do pull ups, like early version of CrossFit. Uh, Wait, you know, so you, so you, act, you actually were inspired by the Rocky movies a little bit? I love it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, we had the little the bar that we'd put up that would always seem to you know fall down when you're on your like tenth or eleventh pull up uh, as a little kid in the hallway. Uh, so yeah, I was inspired by those movies because you know we all love we love those movies because it's the underdog it's the guy that gets knocked down and gets up and keeps moving forward so it's uh we are all drawn to those which is why they're so popular so even before rocky was training in siberia uh and, you know to fight ivan drago the height of the cold war i was uh i was inspired by those films running up and down the hills and doing those things to prepare for what I, where i was going because i always knew that i was going to the seal teams um and the two things that i found out during that during that research at the library was that hey these guys are some of the most elite special operations forces in the world and the training is some of the toughest ever devised by a modern military. So I was in and I was focused on it really for my entire life. Now, is there anything that you, once you got in and I mean, people are more familiar now with, uh, with buds than they would have been years ago because of all the, there was a, I think a discovery channel series. So, you know, we've seen your, your brothers in, in uniform freezing their butts off in the surf and all, you know, we, we, people have some familiarity with those, with those basics. And also there've been a, a couple of movies that have gone into, and I don't know how sensationalized the training was or how accurate it was. I mean, I can tell you that the CIA training in movies is always basically crap, but I think the buds training looks like it's more accurate, more, more true to life. So you, you get in and what's your, you know, around what year do you start and when do you have your first combat deployment? Yep. So I came in in 96, got to BUDS in January 97 and uh, went through BUDS. I got to my first SEAL team in October 97. So it's uh, obviously 9-11 has not happened. And we think we're all showing up at these SEAL teams and we're going to get the pagers and they're going to give us all this awesome gear. And we're going to you know, be at somebody's wedding or maybe at the bar and the pager will go off and then we'll zip Charlie, off. And Charlie Sheen style. You, you, were gonna, exactly. you were going to jump off we a Jeep thought. off the bridge. <laughs> I remember. Actually, yeah, a friend of mine actually did that. Yeah. Uh, Adam Brown did that. Sadly, he was, uh, he was killed. But yeah. Uh, uh, but he's not doing that, but an uh, amazing guy, but called oh, fearless okay. documents his life. Um, but, uh, an amazing, amazing guy. But yeah, we all thought that's what we were going to do. Uh, and then we got to the first seal teams and they handed us brooms, mops, say, go paint that wall, go clean that bathroom, do new guy stuff. So in those days, our job was to be prepared for war. So we joined our platoons. We went through these 18 month workup cycles where you're doing land warfare, desert warfare, mountain warfare, jumping out of planes, diving, doing your close quarter battle stuff, urban warfare, and you're training with the guys you're going to go downrange with. So that when you go downrange, if the call comes, you're the first guys to go in in that area of the world. So the job was to prepare for war. Uh, of course, September 11th happened. Uh, that was on my second deployment. So I had one pre-September 11th deployment. Then second one is when September 11th happens. And we're in Guam. The phones start ringing up and down the hallways. People start knocking on doors, waking people up. And then we go down to the basement where we had one TV and we watched the Twin Towers fall on television. And then it's been uh, back and forth to the Middle East ever since. And in interesting thing is that we all everybody that wasn't deployed at the time thought they were going to miss it uh guys that were stateside are like oh man i can't believe i'm not deployed i'm going to miss it it's going to be over by the time i get over there and here we are almost 20 years later still engaged in uh you know both those regions of the world so uh nobody was in uh, danger of missing it in hindsight we are speaking to jack carr he's a former navy seal and author of terminal list true believer his latest is savage son uh, and I've actually started reading it, so I'll have to come bring him back at some point when I have my full my full review on it. I try to read the books of people that come on the show beforehand, but 
given the world falling apart right now, it's been a pretty busy time, Jack. But tell me a bit about uh, we're talking about your your deployments. Um, I, you know, I, I had the experience of being a, a CIA analyst, so one of those little civilian guys dressed like I'm on a camping trip, uh, walking around trying to help you and your guys actually go go do war fighting. Uh, I was like pointing, you know, the bad guys are over there. Get them. Um, where where was nice. you? Were, were you Iraq or Afghanistan? I'm assuming you got sent to Afghanistan first, but where where'd you go? Yeah, yeah. So I uh, spent time in Afghanistan and Iraq. Most of my time was in Iraq. But uh, interestingly enough, the second novel, True Believer, is really based off something that happened to me in Iraq in 2006 when I was working for your former organization. Uh, and it was one of the highlights of my time in uniform, being the only military person attached to this covert action program that they had going on over there at the time with primarily indigenous forces. And uh, we had one guy that was uh, an Iraqi who was just head and shoulders above his peers when it came to battlefield leadership, uh, when it came to the close target reconnaissance, when it came to planning, when it came to having to flex out there when the bullets started flying, because typically uh, what at least my experience was that a lot of times they were hesitant to make decisions because coming from a place where you're a subject, not a citizen, uh, if you took initiative on the battlefield and it met and you messed up, uh, it was kind of like off with your head type thing. They didn't encourage you to learn from your mistakes in a lot of the parts of the world where we went. Uh, so with this guy, he took he took risks on the battlefield. He adapted quickly on the battlefield. Uh, and then years down the line, I got word that he disappeared. And I thought, oh, what if I fictionalize this and turn this into a, a novel here? So that was the basis for, for True Believer. So you might like that. And you might remember some of those days back there in Iraq in 2006, uh, running and gunning right around the time of the, uh, the Golden Mosque bombing. Yeah. So, uh, so I, yeah. <laughs> I saw it at the beginning of, of, um, of Savage Sun. You had what I've seen in, in many of my, my former peers and friends, both either on the in, Intel agency side or, or on the military side or a combination thereof the uh this was reviewed and just fyi these reviews are ridiculous uh so i was like yep he went through the review process because pretty sure if you talk about james bond's exploding cufflinks they'll find something in there to they'll find something in there to black out i've i've been through that process myself ridiculous i mean it's fiction um, they get very liberal with those black Sharpie pens, government supply or uh, taxpayer supplied, of course. Um, and on the second one, True Believer, I appealed. So they took out 54 sections of the novel, which are blacked out in the hardback. Uh, then I appealed during the time between the hardback came out and the paperback came out. And I won 37 of them on appeal. I should have won all of them because my lawyers attached every single redaction to a publicly available government document so not just on wikipedia or somebody else's book but you can actually just get it from the government and they tie them all to those but still 137 of the 54 so when the paperback came out i unredacted what uh, was in uh what we won on appeal and one of those was a country they took out every single reference to morocco and in my story the hero goes from mozambique and he has to go somewhere to do some training and he, so he goes i made up a cia black site in morocco just made it up uh, i've never been to morocco in, in uniform i went before I joined the military and I loved it. I could describe the, the marketplace. I could describe the mountains and I just loved the country. Uh, so I put it in there and they blacked out everything that said Morocco, anything that said Atlas Mountains. They took out Moorish architecture um, and a made up air base that does not even exist. They blacked out. But I ended up winning those on appeal. And so those were unredacted I mean, in the paperback you version. Can, if you second. give away the secrets of 15th century North African architecture, my friend, I don't, I don't even know how you could show Serious your face business. in any military bars anymore. It's crazy. And the stuff Serious that they, business. I, I've seen the stuff that they've, you know, uh, my, my favorite is when they start blacking out, you know, they'll black out like the weapon that somebody was carrying. That's that's the equivalent of like he had a blank 
and then and then it'll say uh, later on he fired his AK-47. It's like I don't think he was carrying two rifles, but I'm glad you guys got that the first time. Uh, but anyway, so I, this, <laughs> this is some insider stuff. I don't I don't want to get too deep into it because I know I I want to ask him. I and you you mentioned an incident when you were in Iraq and and something that was the the impetus for for further thought processes. I mean, you, you were in the midst of of a particularly nasty ambush. What was it in Baghdad? Yep, yep. Uh, in the uh, neighborhood was it? Anyway, yeah, in Baghdad, and uh, we were in the ambush because a couple of weeks earlier, even though this was technically a sovereign um, Iraqi unit because it was a sovereign country, obviously at the time, um, because we had Americans attached particularly me, because I was uh, the only person really in the military. The other people were from your organization. Uh, we went into a mosque, not me, but the sovereign Iraqi unit went in there um, because a bad guy was in there like they tend to do, because they know that we're hesitant to uh, to hit them if they're in places of worship or hospitals or things like that. Um, so they went in there and grabbed this guy a couple weeks earlier, and it caused a firestorm, of course. Um, and so we tracked another guy to a similar location uh, at night through some technical means. And uh, so we parked outside. We just stopped a block away and we had to wait and we had to go then I'm on the radio and I'm trying to get the approvals from the military side of the house and and then have the, the agency side talk to the military side and go. Through. So 45 minutes we're out there, maybe even an hour. We're just sitting there. Meanwhile, they're maneuvering on us. They're getting uh, elevated positions on us. And then they all open up at one time, uh, of course. But also what we've done is send our snipers up to some elevated positions at the same time. So it turned into this pretty crazy ambush that did not have to happen. We could have just rolled up, gone right in, grabbed this guy, been out of there. But uh, because we had to wait and sit there and wait for senior level leadership to then approve it, which they, uh, well, they didn't get a chance to because the ambush happened 45 minutes in. Uh, yeah, we, so we took a couple casualties, but nobody died. Got uh, one of one of your guys took a, a round, I'll call it in the hip, although <laughs> uh, they, it, took it, in the, it took a round in the best place you can probably take a round, right in the butt. Um, and then one of our indigenous forces got wounded as well, but everybody survived and they weren't uh, weren't serious injuries. But uh, but our snipers being elevated and then uh, me being able to jump out and go coordinate with a QRF, a quick reaction force, uh, a few blocks away that while we were waiting, I had them move closer just in case uh, to be so we could fall back and they could be laying down some fire with Bradleys and everything else that they had. Um, so it, it was an interesting night, very interesting night. But uh, you, know, you feel very exposed out there while you're waiting for these senior level leaders to make their decisions from uh from their comfortable tactical operation centers yeah i mean i remember when i was in baghdad and the cappuccino machine broke down and uh it was a really people did not move fast enough for my liking my friends so we had very different <laughs> we had very different experiences of the war zone but uh guys we're talking to jack carr author and former navy seal and he has a book out savage son you can get it on amazon it's a great time to start reading a new line of thrillers. Uh, although, Jack, do you, do you prefer that people begin with the terminal list, or do you want them to go with the latest offer? You know, do do, you, do they have to go sequential with your novels, or can they just hop in wherever they want? Well, what I'm supposed to say is that you can hop in wherever you want because you're selling the first, uh, this latest book, of course. But uh, to be invested in the characters, to understand the story and the background, it does help to start with the terminal list uh, and then move on to True Believer and then Savage Sun. Um, but but Savage Sun is the one I wanted to write first. 
And when I started this, because I always knew I was going to write uh, as, as I was leaving the military. I knew it from an early age, but I knew the military had to come first, obviously, uh, just because age requirements. But in, back in the 80s and 90s, a lot of the information that I got about SEALs and about special operations, about intelligence services, came from the pages of fictional thrillers by guys like Tom Clancy, Nelson DeMille, uh, David Burrell, AJ Quinnell, uh, JC Pollock, Mark Olden, all these guys whose protagonists typically had Vietnam experience, either with the CIA or uh, special forces or a couple of them in SEAL teams. Uh, so I loved those books growing up. I had such a great experience reading them that I knew one day I'd write books like that. So as I started, I wrote down six or seven different ideas on the table, and I knew that I had to start with the terminal list because the characters weren't developed enough to explore what I explore in this third one, which is really the dark side of man through the hunter-hunted dynamic. So I uh, had to hit, come out of the gate swinging hard with the terminal list, very visceral, very primal, a story of revenge without constraint because I wanted to, to introduce characters or readers to a new, a new character, and I wanted New York Publishing to take notice, and I wanted it to be a little different maybe than some of the other offerings that were out there. And then for the second one, I knew he had to continue on his journey. It's a story of redemption, and I call it a story of violent redemption. So I had to continue that journey to finally get to a place where I could explore the themes of Savage Son. So this is the one I've wanted to write since sixth grade when I first read Most Dangerous Game, a short story by Richard Connell written in 1924. And this is the, this is the novel that pays tribute to that short story. So um, before I get into your, your process and the transition, which I want to ask you about from, from going, you know, a lot, a lot of people do autobiographical that come out of either elite special operations particularly or if people really like tales of of winding through the bureaucracy they can read about you know the life and times of a dia or cia or nsa or whatever um but i i want to know who was the author if there was one for you that was the first the first person you remember reading that you chose that you were like i want to read books you know that this is something that's exciting to you well i was already on that path because my mom was a librarian and we were just oh no no i don't mean as an adult i mean as a kid yeah, oh, I talked oh, yeah. about it as a kid. Yeah, yeah, as a kid. So about fifth grade, I started reading the same kind of novels my parents were reading. Um, so it was David Morell's The Brotherhood of the Rose, uh, which he wrote in the 80s, and it's a trilogy. Next one is Fraternity of the Stone and then League of Night and Fog. And David Morell, of course, created the character Rambo back in 1972 uh, with First Blood. But uh, Brotherhood of the Rose, was he really moved the genre forward in that he took the best elements of UK, so British spy fiction, and then American spy fiction. So think Ludlum and think Le Carre and putting them together into a new type of format to move forward. So it was just fantastic read. And there's one sentence in there that mentions SEALs. Uh, two protagonists are Army Special Forces, Green Berets, but uh, there's one sentence that mentions SEALs. And I was already on that path, but that kind of cemented it for me. I was like, hey, if the guy that created Rambo is saying this about SEALs, I'm on the right path. And then I had such a great experience reading that book. I knew that one day after my time in the teams, I would write fiction just like David Morrell was writing. So it's Brotherhood of the Rose. And what was it like when you when you started that process? Because I I've look I've I've thought about writing a novel many times in life, and uh, some things you you think you jump to and you start, and it's one of those. It, it's a little bit like people who describe. You know, soccer at the highest level is a very it's a very easy game made enormously complicated and difficult by the people that are doing it. Right. Writing sounds like I mean, people can write to write a novel that anybody actually wants to read is one of the most enormously challenging intellectual exercises anybody can go through in that transition. When you come out, you're just about to people say put pen to paper. Right. But obviously you're typing it out. I'm, I'm assuming unless you're really old school. Yeah. Uh, as, as you're typing it out, uh, are you a did you just get into it and start 
just putting ideas down? Are you a structure guy? I mean, I feel like there are a lot of people out there. I get people write in and they say, you know, I want to write a book or I want to write a novel. And, and I'm somebody who actually has only done ebooks. I haven't even written, written a formal book yet. How, how do you get to that phase one? If somebody wants to do how did you get to phase one? Yeah, well, first off, I didn't worry about all those things that you just mentioned. I didn't worry about how hard it is to write a novel, how hard it is to get published uh, by a New York publishing house, how hard it is to even get an agent to look at your stuff. I didn't worry about any of that because just like with Buds, worrying about how hard it is making it through, that's wasted bandwidth. Uh, so I focus all my energy and effort into the product, into writing the best novel I possibly could. And all those people I mentioned that I read growing up, those were really my professors in the art of storytelling. That along with Joseph Campbell, who wrote Hero with a Thousand Faces. Uh, my mom introduced me to him in 1988 when he did a series of interviews with Bill Moyers on PBS about the hero's journey. And so then I just subconsciously applied that to everything I've read or anything I've seen on the screen ever since. And what he did was study different cultures and found that there were these similarities in their mythologies. So their monoliths were very, very similar and that a reluctant hero would go on a journey. He'd meet a mentor at some point along the way who gave him knowledge or a tool to help him complete his task. He'd be tested in some sort of a crucible and then he'd emerge transformed and usually bring those lessons back from whence he came. So that's kind of the breakdown of what most mythologies across different cultures who had never met each other Follow. So there's something about that journey that resonates with us. So that's always been at the, the forefront of my mind. So all those people I read growing up, they were my professors. I knew what I liked. I knew what I didn't like. And then as I got a little older, I discovered Stephen Hunter, uh, Daniel Silva, Brad Thor, Vince Flynn, now Mark Graney. So it's been a part of my life forever. So I sat down, wrote those six or seven different one-page executive summaries out, and then I decided terminal list is first. That's the one. I took that executive summary and started outlining and I would, the, the important part of the outline, for me anyway, was that if I came to a point where I got stuck, where I was like, ah, is this going to resonate with readers? Is this, uh, are they going to believe this? How am I going to solve this problem? I just went around it or through it. I did not stay, stay, spend any time worried about if I was going to be able to figure out because I knew over the next year, at some point, I was going to figure this out. And the battlefield is all about aggressive problem solving, about adapting, about uh, identifying emerging opportunities, capitalizing on momentum. Well, all those same things apply to solving problems on the written page, but you have time. You can sleep on it. It's okay. And if you mess it up, no one's coming home in a body bag. So I got the outline as good as I could, and then I started writing. And as I wrote and I solved those problems, then I would go back to the outline and I'd write them in so I had a visual representation uh, of what I was doing. Uh, and I could just visually see, okay, this, this part might need a little more, this part might need a little less. And then just went through the process, got it as good as I could. And then I started, then I handed it out to about 10, 15 different trusted agents who uh, also read in the genre. I knew they were fans of the genre, so handed it to them, got that feedback. And if one person mentioned something they didn't like, then I discounted it. But if like four people did, then I took another look at it and said, okay, I might need to take a look at this little part right here. And they got it as good as I could and then sent it off to Simon & Schuster. Have you, have you ever had any, any of your, your former colleagues who you asked early on say, you know, hold on a second, buddy. You know, that, that suppressor doesn't work on the, you know, people come at you with, I mean, because there must be this expectation because of your background that the expertise is, is effectively absolute, but any novelist is going to do even beyond their own experience, their own, their own expertise, research and looking at other things. I'm just wondering, is that, I mean, you're clearly bringing a lot of your background into what you're writing. Have you ever extended yourself into some areas where uh, you, you found one, it was particularly fascinating, but also do you ever find yourself saying, oh yeah, there's still, I still have things to learn. I'm still a student about these things as well. 
Oh, yeah, there's a couple uh, acronyms that for the last 20 years in the SEAL teams I thought meant one thing, but actually meant another when I went back to check. So uh, I, I'm very cognizant of the fact that people are going to, particularly on the technical aspects of weapons and explosives and that sort of thing, are going to go through and say and look and try to find mistakes. So if there's something I'm not quite sure about, then, of course, I have a whole host of people uh, and from the SEAL teams, from Army Special Forces, from Delta, whatever, uh, that I can reach out to and ask these questions specifically about explosives, specifically about IEDs, specifically about weapon systems, sniper weapon systems, that sort of thing to make sure I get it right. And there's bound to be a mistake at some point, but up to now it's been uh, it's been pretty good. But what really sets these apart, what I think made Simon & Schuster take notice is that it's, yes, it's a 100% fictional political thriller, but the feelings and emotions that the protagonist feels are things that I felt at some point along the way. So I took those emotions and feelings from Iraq and Afghanistan from certain events, and then I applied them to a completely fictional narrative. So if the person reading it, if it feels to them like the protagonist is, uh, that what he's feeling is really authentic, it's because those come from a real place. So I think that's what differentiated it, made it Simon & Schuster take notice, and then uh, made Hollywood take notice. They're supposed to start uh, filming a series here oh, pretty soon. Oh, we're going to get to the Hollywood side. Don't worry, that, that's coming up in a second. <laughs> uh, of course, I'm going to start asking you about your favorite, your favorite special operations movies. Um, but but I did want to ask you before that, because this, I think, is, is important for people to hear, and I, I'm certainly curious as well. You know, you, you sign up to serve your country in the SEALs. There's a mindset there. And a lot of people from, from my generation, on the military side, and, and to some extent on the, uh, on the intel side or you know, State Department or, or wherever, uh, there's a sense of you want to serve, you understand there's some risk, you have a certain mindset when you go in, and obviously then there's an enormously steep learning curve about a whole host of things once you're actually in that role of service, whether it's military or non-military. On your side, as somebody who was going into uh, going into uh, into training and then deployed for combat, how did your mindset evolve as a warrior? What what were you? What was it like when you were starting? And then what were some of the inflection points, the areas of, of greatest uh, growth or change within your mindset? And then when you prepared to leave, and I know that probably this could be a three hour conversation on its own. But yeah. I figured as a novelist, you could probably give me the, you know, the the, the condensed version. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so up until September 11th, even before I joined the military, I was all, not just reading fiction, but I was reading nonfiction. I was trying to make myself uh, the best possible warrior I could. So I'm studying terrorism. I'm studying insurgencies. I'm studying counterinsurgencies. I'm studying warfare. I'm doing everything I possibly can to increase my chances of getting into the SEAL teams and then being the best operator I possibly could. So up until September 11th, it's prepare for war, prepare for war. I'm continuing to study on my own, not just uh, what the military is teaching me because professional development, uh, it's a lot better now, but back then it was pretty much baptism by fire. Uh, so September 11th happened. And then of course we all are learning. We're all adapting. Uh, if you don't, you're essentially dead. Um, so you have to continue that learning. The enemy's learning from you. Uh, they're adapting uh, most of the times faster than you are on the battlefield because they don't have a big bureaucracy to deal with. Uh, and then the most important part is applying those lessons going forward. And then if you mess up, sharing those failures, not just with your team, but military more broadly so that other people don't have to learn those lessons in blood. So a lot of that was, a lot of the learning was about how you disseminate that information. Uh, first being honest about it, coming back, doing that hot wash, doing that after action report and getting that out there so that it can then be incorporated into training stateside so the next people to come over aren't just getting a quick high five and you're telling them a couple of things that you learned and then they're in the they're in the mix, but incorporating that into training, making it part of doctrine and moving forward, but making it so that you can adapt quickly and evolve because the enemy is certainly doing that for you. Uh, some of the hardest parts are when you come back to 
a Baghdad, let's say a couple of years later, and you're like, wow, this is even worse than it was in 2004. What are we doing? Uh, how, why are we making this situation even worse? And that's tough because the E, well, E1, maybe in the other, but for us, it's like the E5, the E6, they're asking those questions, they're seeing it, uh, and you have to address it as a leader, but in a way that is appropriate and positive and constructive uh, so that you can still focus on the mission at hand because it's always about the mission, taking care of those guys. That's what you owe them. That's what you owe their families. That's what you owe the country. So it's uh, it's all about constant learning and being a learning organization. All right, now let's talk about the Hollywood side. So you got uh, <laughs> your uh, Netflix. Who's making it? What's going on? Bring us up to speed sworn, here. I'm sworn to secrecy. Sworn to secrecy on that side. But it looks like at this point it's like an eight to ten part series. I think I can say that. Um, and what's crazy is as I was writing the first novel, so I started writing that last year in the military. And for those who have been in the military, you know that when you drop your papers, you go into a different pile. And all of a sudden you're just like, okay, go to dental, go to medical, go get read out of these different uh, security things. Uh, and you have some time. So that's when I started writing the first novel. Uh, and as I wrote, I thought of one person in particular playing the main character. Uh, and I didn't, you know, it was weird because after that point, he'd been in Parks and Rec and he had a very small part in Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, and I just thought of Chris Pratt because I wanted someone that was likable. My character had to be likable. I wanted somebody that you'd want to sit down and have a beer with, but they could flip that switch and had the experience and the training and the drive and the knowledge to go and just crush. So uh, I thought, who's that person who has done like some funny stuff up until now, who's likable, but is on this trajectory as an actor uh, that needs to do something darker, needs to do something grittier, uh, wants to push himself a little bit. And I thought Chris Pratt, and I had no connection to him at the time. And then right before my first book came out, a buddy calls and uh, I hadn't talked to him in years. And he said, hey, just wanted to touch base and thank me for helping him as he left the SEAL teams. And I was like, no, absolutely, no problem. And he, he said, well, I always wanted to call and thank you. And I heard you wrote a book and can I can I check it out? And I said, yeah, no problem. I'll send you a galley copy. It comes out in a few months. And uh, he said, well, I'd like to give it to a friend of mine too. And I said, yeah, no problem. Who's that? And he said, Chris Pratt. So Chris got it. Chris loved it. And next thing you know, he options it. And uh, it also, I thought of one person directing it as I was writing it, and that's Anton Fuqua, and he's directing it. So it's just crazy how things wow. come full circle. I'm, yeah, I am familiar, I'm familiar with both of those individuals that you've mentioned and, and think they both do excellent work. And I'm just happy because somebody has to make up for the atrocity that was Jack Ryan on Amazon season two. Not good. Not good. That's now that's like step into my world. That guy's a CIA analyst. If you take the chick from the bar up to your room and you have classified out on your desk, you, you I mean, seriously, I, I think security would just drop you in the middle of the ocean somewhere. I was like, this isn't come on. So I'm glad you guys you guys will get it right. I mean, this is the Jack Ryan. I thought the first season was OK on Amazon. It was pretty good for what it was. They had some good stuff. Season two, I couldn't even get through it. I'm like, this is Tom Clancy. You guys are taking Tom Clancy and you're just you're mutilating the the, the brilliance of Tom Clancy. It was so sad. It made me so sad. I know. I know. The first season, we, we really enjoyed it. And then the second one. And so the while well, the second one was while well, we were watching it anyway, I think it came out a little earlier. But while we were watching it, I was also helping with the pilot script for uh, for the series and the pilot script. It's amazing. I'm so fired up about the script it's incredible but uh i kept taking pictures of the screen of jack ryan season two and sending it to the showrunner so he's the guy that kind of uh, is really the screenwriter and really is is taking care of all these things and i take pictures and be like okay this is not this is an example of what we're not going to do and i'd send it to him and he'd be like okay i got it i got it so yeah it was a, it was kind of disappointing to see how they did that with the season two and jack ryan but well hey, i'm, I'm, I'm excited to see whenever and i, I know it's word of secrecy on the on the platform but whenever it comes out can you tell us when to expect it out though 
oh, who knows with COVID-19 and everybody else's project and, and everything getting bumped, who knows? But uh, I would think 2021. But I, but once again, gotcha. I'm just happy to be here. I don't ask too many of those type of questions. Yeah, yeah. I'm just happy to be here. Yeah. Well, one of the nice things with being a novelist is they option your stuff. They pay you for the options. So that's that's a good that's good news. Um, okay. a, f- a few before we let you get back to uh, the fourth book, which I'm sure you're already thinking about now. Um, oh, yeah. Greatest depiction of special operations in a theatrical uh, release in, in a film for you that you've ever seen. Your, your, your favorite, I should say, not not greatest. Yep. Your favorite special operations depiction in a, in a movie would be what? Well, there's. A couple of different ways to answer that one, but uh, I'll go with the first way you asked it. Uh, usually, I, I try to enjoy them. I don't try to pick them apart and say, "Oh, okay, no, I'd never do that." I, I try not to make it miserable for those around me who are trying to enjoy the movie as well. Uh, so, the only one in recent memory that made me actually want to go back in for a split second uh, was 13 Hours. Um, yeah, I knew a couple of the guys that uh, that died there, um, and I thought they did a, a really good job with 13 hours um, through my experience from the from the military side of the house. Just the, the feel of it um, for me seemed uh, about as authentic. And, and, and as that I guy can, Kaczynski, yeah. I gotta say, uh, or isn't that his last name? Uh, what's his? I think guy? so. Yeah. Yeah. John Krasinski. Yeah. Krasinski, not Kaczynski. Uh, Krasinski. Uh, he kicked ass. I was surprised. Yeah. Yeah, he did a great I, job. I, he did a really good job, and you know, I I, I know a lot of I, I knew a lot of those GRS guys, uh, you yeah. know, very well. And I was like, yeah, they actually, it's and I and I, I know Tonto from from real life too. So it was funny to see the and the theatrical depiction of him was also. Uh, so I would agree that that movie I feel like got it, you know, got it really solid. I do have a slight objection to. I'm just gonna say it. The little CIA guys in that movie. First of all, there's like a girl with a British accent and a guy with a French accent, and they're total jackasses who should get wedgies right away. Like the guy's like, ah, "That's not my job." Like I'm like, "Why is he talking like that?" He's an American case officer. <laughs> <laughs> they're trying to add a little international flair. They're trying to hit some other markets. You know, right, some other, there's some other things that come into play. Uh, there I was, I was like, the, the CIA civilians did not exactly get a get a great showing, and, and I've talked to so many of my my friends in the agency about this. We all agree. We're all sitting around like, "Oh no, the man." with the guns are coming like <laughs> i will now write a memo and i'm like okay like we're not all like that bad like some of some of those guys are former military too jeez yeah. anyway no it's like i i really like that movie i tell everybody to to, uh, to check it out um greatest for you greatest war movie of all time Ooh, you know i love the great escape i have great memories of uh of that one as a kid um uh, of course with uh, steve mcqueen and so i love uh, those older ones like that that i grew up watching with my dad uh, and then as i we moved into the 80s of course i loved uncommon valor uh total 80s action film but it's uh it was it's not they don't say it's based on the book by a guy named jc pollock called mission mia about some guys that go back to vietnam to get their buddies out but it, it really is if you read the book and watch the movie it is gene hackman's in it it's, uh, it's but you gotta watch these things through the lens kind of like if i recommend a book to somebody that was written in the 70s or the 80s uh i have to say make sure you read this through the prism of the time in which it was written uh don't look at just through the lens and filter of today uh try to enjoy it for being written in 1972 or being written in 1983 or 1987 or whatever it is remember what was going on in the world remember the language remember the technology uh and enjoy it for for what it is so yeah i love don't come valor i even love the delta force the first half of the delta force with chuck norris is actually based on real world events uh twa hijacking the way that the terrorists got on of the plane the way they got through security like the first half of that movie is is legit. i'm just gonna be waiting around until the photo of you in a cut off jean jacket with no shirt underneath it 
and double micro double micro Uzis. You have to have the double that's micro Uzis. USA. That's a different one. That's Invasion USA. <laughs> but but uh, the Delta Force came out earlier, and uh, yeah, I mean it was good. They they the way they, the terrorists took the passports of uh, the, the Jewish people and put brought them out to the front. The Israeli passports brought them up and uh, had to kill the Navy diver. He had his Navy ID card. They shot him, dropped him on the tarmac. Like those things actually happened as part of that hijacking. And then of course it goes Hollywood after that. But um, yeah, I, I love all those movies. And if you get you get one firearm and one tool to start out with when the zombie apocalypse hits. Yeah, so I'm going to have to grab my M4 just because I have many to choose from over there in that safe. Um, but yeah, it's going to be an M4 with uh, an aimpoint with a magnifier on it just because I'm so familiar with it. And that was the go-to for so many years going downrange and I had so much time training on it. Um, so that's what I'm grabbing. All righty. Jack Carr, everybody. Check out the book, Savage Son. Also, once you've read that one, Terminalist, True Believer. And uh, Jack, thank you for your service. Thank you for your time. And uh, the Freedom Hut welcomes you back whenever you want. Anything you need from us, you can count on it, all right? Thank you so much. And uh, take care and be safe out there in New York.